Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to another episode of the Comrade Cast. And today, I'm having trouble doing a show. In the infamous words of one host out there, yes, I'm having trouble doing a show today. The reason is, is I'm like in super party mode today. I'm very tempted to just grab a beer and start drinking right now on this episode and just like start partying. Don't know why, just in an exceptionally good mood today for whatever reason. But unfortunately, I can't start drinking as I do have to drive later and it's only noon. I, I gotta have at least some sort of restrictions to my hedonistic temperament. And speaking of hedonism, that's what this episode is dedicated to. Because today we're going to be talking about freedom. And in case you guys didn't know, freedom isn't free. No, it costs folks like you and me. And if we don't chip in our buck five, who will? So yes, I do actually want to talk about freedom today. Because of course we had June, we had Pride Month, it was a great time. And when it comes to July, I do think that there is a very certain character that July has. And I wouldn't say it's like pro-American. It's not the pro-American month. But it's definitely the anti-British month. Because a striking number of nations celebrate their independence from Britain during the month of July including the United States and, of course, my own country of Canada. It's one of the common ties between the two countries. I knew there was a meme about this. It took me forever to find it. Fact is, posted this back on July 2nd, 2021, that yes, July is the International Fuck Britain Month. Well, anyway, I would like to call July something along the lines of maybe Liberation Month or maybe even Liberty Month. But you know what, fine, we can just, if we want to bring in the right-wingers, we can just call it Freedom Month or whatever. <laughs> we can establish all these great nations celebrating their freedom all in the same month together. And it's crazy, actually, how many countries actually celebrate their independence from Britain in July. It's a good, it's a good dozen or so. So anyway, in honor of Liberty Month or Freedom Month or whatever the hell you want to call it, Anti-British Month, I wanted to spend some time talking about freedom in an ideological sense, and particularly what I want to talk about today is libertarianism. And the reason I want to talk about libertarianism today is, one, because I, I find it particularly fascinating. In terms of a political label, it's one of the few political labels out there that can really kind of bandy around between right and left. And the reason it can is because it focuses on a different aspect in comparison to what most political ideology revolves around. And we're going to delve into that. It's going to be hopefully a really interesting conversation about libertarianism. I hope you guys are going to learn a lot. And my main thing here is I want to talk about how a lot of people use libertarianism as a safety blanket to obfuscate some of maybe their more darker feelings and ideas. And this to me is not what libertarianism is. This is not the goal of libertarianism as a ideological function, as a political function. And one of my biggest pet peeves is when people will use it that way. I guess this is also to, to express my frustration, to yell into the void about that particular pet peeve of mine. But before we get there, let's talk about the core fundamental aspect, which the overwhelming majority of political philosophy, political ideology revolves around. And one thing I hope this exercise will do is if you're a person that's maybe 
uh, not sure of your politics or trying to find your own political identity, this will actually help you regardless of whether you're a right-wing or left-wing person, if you're maybe a more politically, independently-minded person uh, and not sure where you fit. Something like this might actually really help you orient yourself on the political spectrum in a way that maybe the political compass won't. So what is the fundamental aspect that all political ideology really boils down to? Well, I've mentioned this before, if you've been paying attention, but that fundamental aspect for us is change. And what I mean specifically by change here is the change within society, the amount of change in society that you are willing to tolerate. All right, so here's my little drawing here. And if you can't see it, what I've drawn here, it's just a, it's just a line, basically. And there's three points on the line, and we're going to label them really quickly. The center point is the status quo. The status quo obviously represents society as it is, society as it stands now, where we are today. So now that I move my head, you can see the label on the far left. And this is not indicative of political ideologies, but on the far left, we have the label society in the past. This is a change. However, this is a change in society, bringing it back towards some sort of known past. And this can be, for some people, maybe only a little bit of change going backwards, maybe a change a couple of years or a couple of decades, maybe to when a societal attitude was more prevalent back in that time. Or in some cases, this can be a change in centuries or millennia even. But regardless, we're talking about a change but backwards to, of course, some sort of known and studied past. Now on the far right of this little spectrum, this will be, of course, on the screen, this will be your guys' right. This is, we have the label pushing society towards an unknown future. So these are people who want to change aspects of society, which may not have been changed in the past, but they believe are holding society back and need to be changed in order for us to move towards a better future. So with this kind of broad outline now established, what you can think about is where you yourself might fall on this spectrum. The amount of change that in society that you yourself want to see. Are you the kind of person that's pretty happy with the way things are? Do you want to keep things relatively the same? Are you dissatisfied with small aspects of society that you want to change and move forward, but by and large happy? Are you dissatisfied and have a longing for a more nostalgic past? Or are you dissatisfied and believe that society must be changed in order to move towards a better future? These are the fundamental questions I think people should ask themselves when deciding where their own politics lie. Expanding on our little drawing here, the next aspect is the political labels and where they fall on this spectrum of change. And we have up top, it's messed up, but it says right wing going towards the left and left wing going towards the right. But regardless though, the way we label political ideologies, whether they're right wing or left wing, is in reference to the amount of change that they want in society. Broadly speaking, right wing ideologies want to keep things the same or bring them back towards some sort of society which existed in the past. Whereas left-wing people and left-wing ideologies have been associated with much more fundamental change in society, or in some cases, not massive change, but I guess rather change around the edges, if you understand what I mean. 
So now with that kind of understanding, let's label exactly where you would find your common political ideologies on the spectrum of change. So now I've added a few markations to our spectrum. Right here, right above the status quo is the conservative. And this is very expressly, when you read conservative ideology and conservative thinkers, this is what they believe the job of the conservative is, is to maintain the status quo at all costs. Well, maybe not at all costs, but to do as much as they can to protect the status quo. For example, if you go back and you read some of your Edmund Burke, he is considered to be one of the founders of conservative ideology. He expressly says in his work that he believes that the job of the conservative is to stand above society and say, hey, wait a minute. Hey, we got to think about this. Hey, hold on. I don't think we should change that. Things are pretty good. And to be fair, I actually think that there is some value in that and some value in having a political apparatus that kind of just says, hey, we, we maybe we should have a second thought about this change before we go on and change anything. The only issue here is that I would have a lot of changes that need to be made, but I do think that it is certainly valuable in having a second opinion and a second analysis before radical change happens. The issue here, and particularly for our own political zeitgeist, is that right-leaning people and conservative people are not happy with simply just defending the status quo. And this definitely happens from time to time in right-wing ideology that conservatives are simply not happy with just conserving anymore, that they want to feel like that they have a more active role in society. And we'll move on to what that yields in a bit here. But before we get there, we'll, we'll move on to the other very popular political label, political ideology, which is liberal. And the liberal, in contrast to the conservative, wants to change the window dressings of society, if you will. They are not interested in vast, sweeping, fundamental changes in the core being of society. They believe usually that the institutions which society are founded on are by and large stable and functional, and what we should be focusing our concerns on are much more marginal, around-the-fringes type of changes. For example, something like gay marriage is a very liberal-minded type of change because it doesn't involve really changing fundamental institutions of society in any meaningful way. Basically, it just changes the definition of marriage and doesn't require any actual fundamental change to the operations and the systems that society are founded on. With that out of the way, let's move towards the more fringe aspects of the change spectrum. All right, so moving to our more fringe aspects of political ideology, on the right wing, we put the reactionary. And what that means is effectively somebody who wants to drag society backwards into a previous time. And this is what I mentioned by sometimes conservatives get unhappy with just preserving the status quo. They feel like maybe the status quo is crumbling. It's not uh, giving them the same benefits that it used to. Or they believe it's simply not effective anymore in combating the people in society who want radical change. You'll see people on the right express this sentiment when they'll say things like, man, we just can't stop the Democrats from marching forward. It just seems like we're always reacting to them or trying to slow them down. 
That's the effect of a reactionary sentiment being expressed. And so in order to take a more active political stance and a more active role in changing society, they will adopt a frame of reference which says that society was better in the past and we need to change society, but to a point where it used to be rather than potentially changing things to a new unknown future. This particular time in the past was great, so we should do everything we can to try and change society back to how it used to be in that time in the past. And when things are getting rough and things are not looking very good for the future, this is an extremely powerful sentiment because it invokes a very sort of warm blanket of nostalgia that can work not just on old people, but it sometimes can work on young people too, particularly if they feel like the future has no value or the future is looking bleak. They will sometimes get nostalgia through osmosis, if you will. They might read about a time in history where, to them, things were better than they are now, and they might long or wish that they were born in that time. And then what ends up happening a lot of time is they end up seeking out older people who have this nostalgic outlook for the past. And then, of course, they tell them how great things used to be back in the day. And that, of course, reinforces their own outlook on society and their own political perspective. And one of my biggest, biggest alarm bells for a reactionary in modern times, in, in American political context at least, is when they start talking about how great everything was back in the 1950s. Oh, 1950s, the golden age. Really got to go back to the 1950s with segregated water fountains. Fucking clowns. So obviously you can probably tell, don't have a lot of respect for reactionary positions. In fact, if a left-wing person ever calls you a reactionary, you better believe that they are trying to insult you. They are not saying something respectful to you. They're trying to get under your skin. They're trying to insult you. So yeah, that is not a word which has a lot of friendly connotations well at least in left-wing circles and even in right-wing circles right-wing people won't really refer to themselves as reactionaries right and the reason why fascism or something like that isn't here is because while usually fascism draws on reactionary elements it doesn't actually have to be reactionary by definition while it doesn't happen very often sometimes fascism instead of looking towards that kind of nostalgic past like for example Mussolini did in Italy trying to draw upon the old Roman Empire and how great we used to be when we were the Roman Empire of course the Nazis in Germany and Hitler went even further back with their whole weird Aryan pagan thing you look into the the weird fucking shit he actually believed they believed effectively that there used to be a race of Aryans that were spread across the entire world way back in the day. And it used to be this like golden age where everything was great and, and awesome and wonderful. And then something happened and all the Aryans and their power got it got taken away. It, got, it was collapsed. Their empire was collapsed, whatever you want to say. And now Hitler is the embodiment of this new Aryan empire. And he's going to bring the world back to when the Aryans used to be in charge and everything was awesome. And to promote his belief and his worldview, Hitler would actually send out archaeologists all over the world looking for the swastika in particular was one of the uh, symbols which he conflated with this, this ancient Aryan race 
to look for evidence of the Aryans wherever he could find them. And then, of course, use whatever evidence he could find to then bolster his weird, bizarre political ideology. So anyway, what I'm saying is that, well, yes, most of the fascist movements in our time have drawn on reactionary elements. It is possible for one to draw on a more sort of optimistic and and, and hopeful uh, vision for the future, although obviously turned um, sour towards their own political ends. Anyway, moving on to the left end, you of course have the socialists who believe that society needs to undergo massive change in order to benefit the people, that systems must need to be changed radically and fundamentally in order for society to actually benefit the overwhelming majority of us. So then, of course, the last little tick there is where I am. I obviously advocate for radical change in society. I want society to undergo massive and fundamental structural changes in order to deal with the crises which are coming, which we've talked about before, environmental crises, demographic crises, economic crises. All of these factors are set to impact us in a relatively quick succession and relatively quick order. And our society as it stands now is simply not prepared to deal with them in any way, shape or form. So I advocate, of course, for radical change in society because I don't believe the status quo is able to deal with the future. And I don't think that there are any societies in the past that have been able to deal with what's coming because the fact of the matter is what's coming is going to be a unique challenge for humanity in a number of ways. There's not really a society out there that has dealt with what we're going to deal with. So we don't really have a good frame of reference. So anyway, this whole exercise was to show you guys, like I said, that fundamental aspect of political ideology, where the majority of our politics and our understanding of politics revolves around. And that is, like I said, that aspect of change and how much change you want and how much or how little change you actually want in society. But I'm sure you guys have noticed that I didn't bring up libertarianism because like I said, libertarianism is unique and interesting. <laughs> At least to me, it's interesting in the sense that it does not operate on this sort of aspect of change which most political ideologies operate on. The fact of the matter is that libertarianism can operate in tandem with change or without it. Because fundamentally, it's not concerned with the amount of change necessarily, though libertarians are happy to use it as a tool to achieve what their political goals are. So now, let us talk about libertarianism and the main subject of this entire episode. Now we're finally getting to it. In any case, I'm sure you guys probably have figured out what the fundamental core of libertarianism revolves around. And if you said freedom, you are 50% right. And this is a big issue that we're going to talk about in a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to libertarianism and exactly what it seeks to achieve. But it's not just freedom, comrades. It's individual freedom. Because saying just freedom isn't specific enough for the libertarian. Because when it comes to freedom, there are different tiers 
of rights and freedoms that interact with those tiers. And for the libertarian, the highest of those tiers, the tiers which outrank every other tier of freedom, is that individual freedom. The, the freedom for the individual to pursue their life and their choices as unhindered as possible. That is the spiritual essence of libertarianism and, of course, the ideological essence of libertarianism. However, not everybody follows this, and in fact, people will use, particularly conservatives, will use just the freedom aspect of libertarianism to obfuscate other political goals and aspects that they want to achieve. And to illustrate that, I'm going to just quickly go over the sort of tiers of rights, the tiers of freedoms that exist in our political context, and how different political ideologies and perspective might rank those tiers. But before I get there, I want to very briefly talk about why libertarianism is different from sort of these other ideologies that we talked about, because libertarianism isn't necessarily concerned with change. It's only concerned with change if they believe that the society that exists is not doing enough to enable individual freedom. If it did enough to enable individual freedom, it would be, the libertarians would defend the status quo. They wouldn't be looking to change society. So not only that, these sort of fights for individual freedom can take on both a more progressive, forward-looking outlook for society, but also a reactionary outlook for society. And a good example for this would be prohibition in the 1920s. A libertarian would very obviously argue against prohibition because libertarians argue against prohibition for all types of drugs, not just alcohol, but effectively all drugs, up to including the hardest ones you can think of. But in that particular era, they would actually be arguing for a reactionary outlook because they would be arguing to bring society back to a time when prohibition wasn't enacted, right? They're going back to a previous time when prohibition didn't exist. So during that time, the libertarian would actually be making what would be considered a reactionary argument. However, in some of our current times, libertarians are generally speaking some of the biggest advocates for things like gay marriage, things like, of course, drug legalization, weed legalization, things along those lines, because ultimately to them, again, that individual freedom is what's important to them. So they will argue from a progressive stance in that case, moving society forward to a point where gay marriage is accepted by and large, because that is enhancing the amount of individual freedom which exists in society. It creates more freedom for the person who is gay to have that opportunity to marry someone of the same sex. So what I'm saying here is that libertarianism can take on different forms depending on what's happening in society, because for them, again, that change is only important when that freedom isn't actually being expressed to its utmost. All right, so here are three tiers of rights, our three tiers of freedoms. And at all points, I think most political ideologies want to respect all rights and freedoms at some point. However, there is going to be intersections. There's going to be times when you have to triage your rights, if you understand what I'm saying. 
And when you're making the call of which ones are going higher on that triage list or lower, it depends on how much you weight these individual tiers. So some people weight individual rights as the highest. Some people rate states' rights as the highest. And some people rate federal rights as the highest. Federal rights is basically like a countrywide administration, countrywide rights and laws. So states' rights represents a more local level of rights, rights at a more local level of government. In the United States and here in Canada would be a provincial or state level of government. In Europe, they don't really have states or provinces like we do over here in North America. It's a much more federal system. There aren't really so much provinces. They're just more administrative districts, if you will. So in those cases, it's almost more like cities represent that, that level of states' rights more than provinces or states do. One thing I've noticed when examining political systems in Europe, particularly continental cities, I don't think, feel like this exists so much in the UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain. When it comes to those countries, the cities and the city administrations have a lot more power than in comparison to over here, I feel like, in, in North America, right? Like the city of Paris has a ton of administrative power that I would say is on the same level as maybe a, a state kind of government is in the United States. So anyway, if you just happen to be in a country that doesn't really have states in the sense that people in North America have, try and think of it more as like local rights, maybe city rights, that type of thing. And then of course there's rights at the individual level, which is basically, again, our own ability to make our own individual choices and actions within society. So, and I think the best way to illustrate how various political ideologies rank these rights is to use our good old friend, the political compass. All right, so let's start here with where I am in our political spectrum uh, on the libertarian left. So this is how someone on the libertarian left, by and large, would organize their hierarchy of rights. So individual rights are still at the top. And by and large, I believe that individual rights outstrip federal rights, country rights, or collective rights, you know, whatever you want to call them. Virtually all of the time, the only time that I think that country rights override individual rights are in very limited times of intense national emergency, a war, for example, during the COVID pandemic. Those times in particular, I believe... It is necessary for us to come together and eschew our individual rights during these times of great crisis. But 99% of the time, individual rights must take precedence over country rights. And when it comes to states' rights, I genuinely couldn't give a fucking rat's ass about states' rights, guys. States' rights can kiss my fucking behind. I have really yet to see a convincing argument for a time in which sort of localized rights or localized governmental rights should be held up or should be enshrined at the expense of more countrywide legislation and countrywide considerations. Still haven't really seen a good argument for that. And as far as I'm concerned, yeah, states' rights don't really care about them. <laughs> I remember I told this to a guy recently and he thought it was like the funniest thing he'd ever heard in his life. He's another left-wing guy. And he just thought it was hilarious. I'm like, okay, man, even I can recognize it wasn't that funny. 
But this guy also had what I would consider it to be like legitimate Trump derangement syndrome. You know how conservatives will talk about Trump derangement syndrome. It is definitely a thing. But conservatives really need to realize that within their own movement, that exact same type of derangement syndrome exists for whatever the leftist leader is. Here in Canada, there's definitely a Trudeau or derangement syndrome around conservatives. In America, there's definitely a Biden derangement syndrome. And that is when effectively this hate for whatever your political opponent happens to be just is so powerful and so manifest in your head that it's all you can think about and it's all you ever talk about is how much you hate this person. But yeah, this guy just kept telling me like every five minutes we were talking about how awful Donald Trump is and how much he hated Donald Trump. And it's like, bro, I love you. I get it. I'm not a fan. I hate Donald Trump too. But we really don't need to talk about it every five minutes. We really don't need to come back and circle around to this like every five minutes. I'm trying to bring the conversation to other places and you keep bringing it back to Trump. I don't want to talk about him anymore. So anyway, I, I can't get through an episode without sharing at least one random anecdote. In any case, this is where I would say the libertarian left organizes their hierarchy of rights. Now let's move up to the authoritarian left. All right, guys, so here is how an authoritarian left person would rate these rights, at least in my opinion. Federal rights, country rights, collective rights, they are on top always, no matter what. Pretty much individual rights are given breathing room only so much as they don't come into contact and interfere with federal rights. And of course, states' rights. What are those? We don't care. We don't care about them. Don't give a shit. So yeah, the big differentiating factor here is how we view federal country rights versus individual rights. For me, again, the only time I'd even consider giving up any individual rights is during times of great crisis or emergency. However, the authoritarian left person believes that it is more necessary to have federal rights above individual rights because that will allow the guiding of society towards their political goals in a much more effective way. That is a perspective that I, to put my only, vehemently disagree with and is certainly not how I arrange my own politics. I believe it is much more important to use the seductive power of words and the allure of left-wing ideology much rather than trying to jam it down people's throats. This is part of the reason why we still have conservative people who think that your typical leftist is someone who uses Zimzer pronouns and has purple hair and will spend all their time talking about how much they hate Donald Trump. This is, to be honest, a representation of no left-wing person I have ever met in my entire life. Yet somehow conservatives seem to think that this is the only left-wing people that exist. It's a very, very bizarre phenomenon. In any case, with that being said, let's move on to the authoritarian right. So now moving on to the authoritarian right. And the authoritarian right is interesting in the, in the sense that they will shift their priorities depending on whether or not they are in political power or in control. When they are not in control, they have, it's this weird, and this is where a lot of authoritarian right conservative thinking is now, this weird moment where states' rights are the most important thing, so much so that they take precedence over individual rights. For example, the state's right to decide that they don't want to recognize gay marriage 
is more important than the individual right to be with the person that they love and want to be with. And one of the things that frustrates me most about our political discourse is one of the very greasy things that these authoritarian conservatives will do is that they will try and uh, pass that off as libertarianism and claim that that's libertarianism when that is fucking not what libertarianism is. And I wish, I guess maybe, we'll, fuck it, I'll just say it now, and we'll expand on it when we get to the libertarian right. And I wish libertarian right-wing people would call them out more on that kind of bullshit. But to be fair, at least in Canada, I see a lot of Canadian people who I would consider to be libertarian right really aggressively will call people out on that shit. Not so much in the States. For example, I remember a clip of Dave Rubin. This was, oh man, a couple of years ago. I can't remember what he was on. I think he was on his own show. I can't remember who he was interviewing. Obviously, Dave Rubin, a famously gay conservative, he was talking about gay rights and gay marriage. And he's like, listen, I really wish the conservatives would adopt a more libertarian approach on gay marriage and go on a state by state, by state basis. And I'm like, you fucking moron, Dave Rubin. That is not what libertarianism is. And we'll delve more into that when we get to the right-wing libertarians. But libertarianism isn't an excuse for your state government to oppress people. Again, that's a, libertarianism is not the admiration and enshrining of states' rights no matter what. I don't know what the fuck political ideology that is. That's like neo-confederism or something like that, where states' rights take precedence over everything else. But this is something very, very greasy that conservatives will do, where they will try and argue that states' rights are libertarian or libertarian-aligned. And in a sense, they are, but not in the way that they are trying to tell you. Again, they're trying to tell you that, for example, the state's right to oppress people, to take away their own individual freedoms is somehow more paramount than their own individual right to enjoy those freedoms. So in any case, this is only how authoritarian right people view the world when they're not in power. And the reason they view it this way is because when they put states' rights at the top of the hierarchy, this allows them to effectively have their own political power in areas of a country that might not broadly agree with them. And America is a perfect example of this. For example, you have southern states which want to enact very conservative policy, which the broad swath of Americans vehemently disagree with them on. And the only way they can really enact these policies without having federal control is to enshrine states' rights at the top of that hierarchy so they have the ability to violate individual rights as they see fit. But if the authoritarian right actually gains control, then their hierarchy of rights changes drastically. And now all of a sudden federal rights are the most important because it's our federal government. And states' rights are next most important because they are still most they are still important no matter what. Even if it's our federal government, states' rights are still important. And that individual rights, bah, that was really a fig leaf so we could trick people into voting for us or supporting our political cause realistically, we're not that interested in individual rights. It's, in a sense, much more about reforming society now that we have the federal government to ensure that our values and our thought processes are as enforced against a broad a swath of population as possible. So you got to watch out for those authoritarian right. Very greasy, very greasy. 
But let us move to the star of the show in this case, which is actually the libertarian left, the most important one of these four that I wanted to talk about for this episode. Excuse me, the libertarian right. Did I say libertarian left? If I did, I apologize. I meant libertarian right. So now we have the libertarian right. And one thing I've mentioned to you guys is that when it comes to people on the right, the ones that I really get along with the most and can actually have like real, not just good conversations, but like long lasting personal friendships and lifetime friendships, it's with people on the libertarian right. Because while there may be many topics that we disagree with, particularly on economic policy, we have a understanding that when it comes to individual freedom, that by and large needs to be as protected as much as possible. And while many on the libertarian right would, I think, disagree with me in the sense that when emergencies do come, we need to give up some of our rights. I think libertarian people on the right are even are more hardcore about that in the sense that even during emergencies, like even during COVID, during a war, individual rights still must reign supreme. But when it comes to their view of the world, of course, they have individual rights at the top. And then in comparison, the big difference between the libertarian right and left is where we have uh, states' rights and federal rights. Uh, for the libertarian right, that is, the uh, states' rights take precedent because they effectively see it like rights need to flow down from the individual to the largest collective body. They flow from the individual and then local government, and then they have the same kind of attitude towards federal rights as I do to states' rights. That is, federal rights... What are those? Who cares about those? But here's one of the most frustrating things for me is that a lot of time people in the authoritarian right or conservatives will call themselves libertarian right or just say that they're libertarians. And the reason they do this is because saying I'm a libertarian might have a softer social connotation, particularly if you are a person, a right wing person who is living in an area that is more left wing saying something like, I'm a libertarian, is going to have a more softer social connotation than saying, I'm a conservative. But what they are doing, unfortunately, is really hiding the ball. And one of the best ways to figure this out is you can figure out who really believes in individual rights just because they're an asshole, or who believes in individual rights because they genuinely believe in individual rights. And that is, you can figure out who actually is a libertarian by who follows the spirit of libertarianism and who doesn't. And one of the easiest ways to figure this out, figure out who's an actual right-wing libertarian and who's just a conservative pretending to be one, is to ask their opinion on trans rights. Because there are conservatives that will effectively use libertarianism as a safety blanket to be an asshole to trans people. For example, they'll say, well, I'm against trans people using their preferred pronouns because from a libertarian perspective, you can't force me to use different pronouns with you. You can't force me to change my speech. And this is true, but you're not arguing from a libertarian perspective there. Because for the actual libertarian, again, the one who follows the spirit of libertarianism, that freedom to identify with the gender of their choice is in fact one of the most powerful expressions of their own ideology and one of the most powerful expressions 
of individual rights. So the true libertarian, when they see a trans person wanting to identify as the gender of their choice, they applaud that because that is them exercising their own individual rights at its most pure level. It's them exercising their ideology in its purest form. And in order to encourage more people to follow their own individual freedom, they are going to use the preferred pronouns of the trans person, not because they're forced to, but because they want to encourage more people to follow that path of individual freedom. Because for them, it's not about just trying to find a way that they can rationalize not using a trans person's preferred pronouns. For them, it's about actual freedom and about trying to create as much freedom in society as possible. And if you don't use a trans person's preferred pronouns, you will be creating less freedom because you will be creating a circumstance where people will be less likely to follow their own individual choices and thereby express their own individual rights. And I really do wish more right libertarians would stand up and say this and say, listen, man, my ideology is not just an excuse you can use to be an asshole to people. I have an actually coherent political perspective and coherent political philosophy that I'm trying to achieve here. And by you muddying the waters, you are effectively making that a harder task for me. And here's the thing, right? From a libertarian perspective, I, uh, from a libertarian perspective, I am not enforcing any kind of language crackdown or want people thrown in jail for misgendering trans people or using the wrong pronouns or anything like that. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. Not to mention our current justice system is in no way, shape or form prepared to actually deal with something like that because we have such massive backlogs of people who have committed actual crimes that there's no way that people misgendering trans people could ever be dealt with in our current legal system in an actual timely fashion. It's silly for anyone to really suggest, in my opinion. What we are saying, though, is that if you are misgendering someone, you're just an asshole, okay? And you shouldn't be surprised when people call you an asshole for doing it. For example, if you're a guy and I start using feminine pronouns with you, there is really no reason for me to do that unless I'm being a dick to you, effectively. There's no reason for me to do that unless I'm just trying to be an asshole and piss you off. And you might say, sure, it's your right to be a dick to me. Um, but in that circumstance, I would certainly think that it's your right to push back against me for being a dick to you. Don't think if you just are sitting there and misgendering a trans person to their face that they just have to sit there and take it. There seems to be this attitude that if they, on the right, that if they treat trans people like crap, they just have to sit back and take it and let them do it. And if they say anything or do anything or push back in any way, they're somehow hindering their freedom of speech and censoring them. You can't expect to treat people like shit and them to just take it. There's another attitude among the right that, that does bother me. Sometimes they think that they're heroes if they misgender trans people that they have, that they're doing this some great service for society. And by them getting pushback, it just shows like how far gone society is down this degenerate rabbit hole or whatever. Come on, guy, get over yourself. You're not fucking Rosa Parks because you misgendered a trans person. So anyway, long story short, 
shout out to the people on the libertarian right. You guys are actually cool by and large. And again, while we may not agree on everything or even a lot, I think that their attitude and their philosophy and their political outlook is again, really conducive towards long-term personal relationships for me, at least personally. And I think that for left-wing people out there, if you're worried or concerned about fraternizing with people on the right, look for people who are libertarian right-leaning people. They at least will be chill for the most part and you can actually have conversations with them and you can actually find common ground. And again, just shout out to this particular cohort of people. You probably don't get a lot of praise from people on the left uh, when you do deserve it. My biggest complaint about this particular cohort is that uh, sometimes when push comes to shove, they end up joining with the authoritarian right and kind of goose-stepping along with them into oblivion. But this is a once-in-a-century type of phenomenon that ends up happening. But that being said, not to be too speculative or put on my tinfoil hat or whatever you want to say, I do think one of these moments for the right is coming soon where people on the libertarian right are going to need to start asking themselves, am I going to goose-step along with the authoritarians or am I actually going to fight against their influence? And I hope you guys make the right call on that one because if you do, I'm going to be right there fighting alongside you guys. Anyway, I wanted to spend at least this episode maybe talking about some aspects of more right-leaning political ideology where I can find common ground with, where I can find agreement with, because we've been going pretty hard against them recently. And sometimes it's good to say, you know what, we have a lot, particularly with the authoritarian right, I, I find it almost impossible to find common ground with them. But when it comes to this particular realm of politics, I think there is a lot more common ground that can be had. And it's okay to celebrate that on occasion. So with that out of the way, let's go to our feel-good story. And today we are going to wrap in a very small update on the Ukrainian war into our feel-good story. Because I believe this was, no, this was two days ago as of recording. And three days ago, I think, by the time you guys will see this, we had a, another attack on the Kerch Strait Bridge. We have a very brief video from The Guardian here. We're going to go over and view. I'm not going to turn on the audio because there really isn't much to see or to hear, or rather. So obviously you can see the damages against the road section of the bridge. And as you saw, pretty heavily damaged there. None of these vehicles are able to cross. And from what we know of this attack, we believe it was carried out by two Ukrainian sea drones, which obviously scooted underneath the bridge and exploded, doing the damage that you can see right in front of you. Let's throw another little video on in the background so you can see the damage here. As I continue to talk about it and continue to talk, in any case, yes, we had this dad, we had yet another attack on the Kerch State Bridge. If you guys recall, this is the second one in reference to Steel City Gator. We have Kerch State Bridge 2, Electric Boogaloo. This one, though, it doesn't seem like it hit the rail sections, which is particularly for military context, the most important parts of the bridge. Hitting the road sections, though, is, it's probably a real pain in the ass for a lot of everyday Russians, as you saw that there was huge traffic jams after this attack stretching on for i believe there was upwards of four hour traffic jams 
And here you can see this was footage from the first attack. But in any case, we had massive traffic jams stretching up for four hours. People can't get across to Crimea. But one of the things the government is saying people should be doing if they need to return to Russia is instead drive through occupied Ukraine. <laughs> I remember in our first video when we talked about the actual Kerch State Bridge explosion and they had people driving on the bridge like immediately after like within eight hours or whatever after the bridge being blown up and i remember saying at the time you couldn't have paid me enough money to have driven over that bridge at the time right it would have been white knuckle like oh my god is this thing gonna collapse underneath me at any second in the same sense you could probably get me to drive through occupied ukraine as a russian but it would be also not exactly the most <laughs> safe and relaxing journey you could imagine. I would definitely be on edge the entire time that Ukrainian partisans could come out at any time and disrupt me, could kidnap me, could do whatever, right? Could blow up my car, could take away my supplies, do whatever because this is their country. I would be worried the entire time driving through back to Russia that something could happen at any point because you're effectively driving through a war zone. You're driving through a place that your country doesn't have 100% control over, despite the fact that they're trying to get you to believe that they have 100% control over it. So in terms of the actual counteroffensive, there still isn't much to report. This is so far really the biggest thing that has happened in quite some time. Progress continues to be uh, excruciatingly slow and grinding. I do believe that by and large the Ukrainians are being more cautious than uh, Cavalier. Than Cavalier. That being said, though, they have certainly lost a lot of equipment. It doesn't seem like they have lost as many lives. Equipment is replaceable. I do worry, unfortunately, though, that many people in the West have pinned a lot of political hopes on this counteroffensive, and if it doesn't yield the kind of results that people want it to, there may be some political consequences in terms of the future funding that Ukraine will receive from the West. That being said, though, what is happening right now appears to be a very concerted counter-battery attempt on the part of the Ukrainian army that rather than spending their time attacking ammunition depots or armored vehicles or things of that sort of nature, they're spending a lot of time really trying to grind down the Russian artillery as much as they can. When we had our big episode about the adapting tactics of the Russian military, we talked about how the Russian military, the artillery branch of the Russian military is still its most potent and effective component. And it seems that Ukraine, in order to counter that, is trying to do everything they can to grind that artillery capacity down in order to try and get fire superiority in an area that they want to engage in a counterattack. I think of it in a way of in a basketball game, you got to have somebody covering their best player because if you don't have somebody cover their best player, he's going to wreak havoc on your team. They need to be covering that artillery. They need to be doing something to counter Russia's artillery advantage. And they right now are doing a pretty decent job, it seems like, in really hammering that artillery capacity for Russia. And the one thing I do really want to remind people of is that the Russian defense lines are incredibly brittle. So if we do have a breakthrough, it's going to come very quickly. 
And the reason is, is because Russia can only really, their defensive doctrine can only really absorb maybe one breakthrough. If the Ukrainians are able to break through at multiple points, because the way they've set up their defenses, which is uh, you have your mines and obstacles as your first line of defense, then you have like secondary trenches that have troops as your second line of defense. And then in the back, you have even more secure bunkers and anti-tank guns and other types of static emplacements as your third and ultimate line of defense if things are starting to really hit the fan. And then supporting this structure, you have a reserve which is able to deploy into areas that are uh, seeing a lot of pressure or at risk of being broken through. And again, this is a very effective defensive strategy. In fact, this is like when I play and I'm wargaming, this is my go-to defensive strategy when I'm, I'm defending an area. But the thing is, is that it's extremely brittle. And once you have multiple breakthroughs and your reserves engaged, that's when things can really start to get dicey because you have no one able to actually counter the secondary breakthrough. You're going to see maybe a potential collapse along the entire line as your troops from areas which may not be currently being attacked are going to try and leave and reinforce areas that are getting broken through, which of course will leave these previously well-defended areas much less defended, which gives Ukraine the opportunity to engage in more breakthroughs and you can see how things start to collapse from there. Though, that being said, given what I've seen from this counteroffensive, in my opinion, we are not close to that point where we are going to see like a tipping point and like kind of brittle Russian defense collapsing. I don't think we're at that point yet. I don't think Ukraine has applied enough pressure. And right now, I don't think that that is their current goal. Like I said, I think their current goal is to try and diminish Russian artillery capacity as much as possible, and if they can, also Russian air capacity, which is being a real headache for the Ukrainian army, although that is a more difficult task than, than dealing with the artillery, though that being said, there is, is much less in terms of air power than artillery power for the Russian army. So anyway, that's going to be it for that, and that's going to really bring us to the end of the show. Uh, I have once again, um, I'm trying to get this these shows into that kind of half an hour mark, However, I keep going um, <laughs> closer to that hour mark. I always end up having more to say than I previously thought that I had to say. In any case, this has been Comrade signing off for now. And now I am going to go party it up. And until next week, you guys take care.